You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And Fran, have you ever thought about how long that is? It's like brought to you by so-and-so, presented by so-and-so, sponsored by... (laughs) I think about it every time I say it. And then I'm like, it's even worse when we do like a rooted discussion Yeah, or like it just keeps adding to now yeah. it's a very special rooted discussion episode of <laughs> no it just hit me when you did it but, <laughs> but today we're buzzing into episode 89 which is full of policy politics edibles plants and provenance Ooh, that's a uh, lot. but before we get into all that we have some updates uh corrections i, I wouldn't say we were Ooh. wrong but i will say correct all right all right and then some announcements okay uh the first one which is i don't want no one pointed this out to me it was more uh my own self-awareness but my my that's hot plant a couple yep. about a month ago was the American beach mm-hmm. um, where I said, I don't really see a lot of them around. And then I started seeing see them it. everywhere, but I think I did clarify and say, I haven't seen many big ones, which um, even the one I have in mind that I referenced in that, that episode, while it's bigger, it's not big. Like I've seen in upstate New York and, and other places. Have you been to Sadler's woods? I haven't. No. So there are, there's, there were some large ones. I know I'm thinking about one, a large one that had fallen over, but mm-hmm. it was huge. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the times, like I was saying in the last episode, like locally when you see them, it's a beach forest for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, but no, I agree. Like upstate New York is a whole different. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I said that. I'm like, I don't really see a ton of them. And then – but why I pointed out is it's one of the trees that sticks out now because it's one that has all its leaves where everything else is just about – been defoliated yeah. and uh and then i started seeing like 10 15 to 20 foot trees all over the place i'm like oh i guess i probably shouldn't have said there aren't any of them around because they they really are quite a few they're just they're they're immature trees they aren't uh they aren't very big yet you know it's it's probably one of those instances you know where your eyes don't really focus on it until oh, it yeah. kind of comes yeah, to exactly. mind and I'm, I'm sure you know a lot of the times we'll have these conversations and then after we record the episode i start seeing them a lot more than i typically do just just because they're on my mind, and yeah. maybe that's yep. it. I don't know. Number two on my list yes. was, because uh, we had this conversation off air too, is this, again, this was about a month ago, and we just haven't recorded a buzz in that long. Um, we had that discussion about the guy from Impractical Jokers who became a vegan because he didn't want to hurt animals. And then we had that whole diatribe yeah. where we went way off topic to talk yeah. about that. Well, we got a lot of feedback about all that – being vegetarian does hurt animals less, which I agree with. Yes. And that was a lot of the feedback we had. Um, I think it got taken a little out of context where and our listener base is definitely uh, more keyed into this than, cur- than cur- I think the I agree. general I population agree. where I guess a lot of my interactions just had been with people who were switching to that kind of diet to, uh, to stop animal cruelty. And um, and I guess what I was saying is, oh yeah, you're still cruel animals, so you shouldn't do that at all. I wasn't trying to say that. It was more of a um, I, you got to recognize that there's still cruelty and make make overall life decisions based on that. And it's even the conventional systems even worse. But that doesn't mean 
I think you were just yeah. bringing light. Oh, like yeah. I under because yeah. we've had this conversation many times. Just the fact that that in conventional farming, even if it's a vegetarian diet, death mm -hmm. still occurs, whether it be on purpose or yeah. not. And it was just saying, don't think if you're doing that that there isn't things that happen bef that you don't see before that food hits your table. Yeah. That was it. Not saying that. That, oh, just forget it. Don't do it. You might as well just eat meat because death occurs everywhere. It's just that, hey, there's factors behind it, mm -hmm. and we realize it's a much less than the others. But yeah. we're talking about oh, people yeah. that think that – Like that anecdotal yes. evidence that yes. you provide. I'm like, oh, he's, yeah, they're making that yeah. decision based off of a, a, a fallacy that they're making up in their heads. Yeah. But what it led to is actually a lot of great conversations that I was able to have – where I could explain a little bit more what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to correct that, too, because that was not, like, to be a shot at no, vegans or vegetarians. No, it was more to say a lot of people are making that choice saying, oh, if I just become a vegan, I'm not hurting animals anymore. And that's not really the case. As a population, we need to to drive towards more sustainable food choices. And that's and I, I think that away from, from conventional agriculture is regards to meat production, but also from soy and corn as well. And I think I think most people that, that are vegan are aware of animals. Oh, yeah. You know, because yeah. they, they talk about in production of clothing and, and mm -hmm. not just the food that you eat, just in all realms of our everyday life and how that happens. So it's you know, I appreciate you know, it's funny, it's one of those instances where I felt it was clear to us. Yeah. Yep. But not necessarily clear to all of our audience. Like I knew what we meant, and yeah, I think yeah. it got just taken a little bit differently than how we <laughs> we, we meant yeah. it to be. And I've been in the same shoes where you the the first line kind of catches you off guard. Like, what did they just say? And then you're so uh, what's the the right way to say? It? You're thinking about that and and lose clarity on the rest of it because of that first. First sentence. So that was and more, it, of and a, it's easy when it's something that you're passionate about, oh, you know. Definitely. And it's it, and it's not something to be taken lightly, you know. As as I get older and time progresses, I've, you know, my diet has definitely changed for the better, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know. And I'm I'm aware of all of those instances, and and it's one of those things. It's like a slow progression for me, but I I realize it myself as, you know, it's funny. If twenty years ago, I would have been like, no. Nah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that like if you were to tell me like, hey, you know, 50 year old Fran is going to do this, I'd be like, get get out of here. But no, it's, you know, and it's I'm glad that it's something so many people are so passionate about and that we could have these mm -hmm. conversations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what a lot of what we're trying to do is, is have more of these conversations. It goes beyond native plants and habitat and ecology. It kind of ties into our everyday life where it should be that we should be having those conversations hand in hand. Yeah. Um, an announcement, which I made at the end of our last podcast, was we have a whole bunch of these Pinelands Nursery Yetis, and uh, they have, like, the, the our logo etched out on them. We have a couple extra, so I wanted to – we're going to – Fran and I are going to pick one of the five-star reviews that's left um, between now and our 100th episode. Yes. I guess episode 88 and our 100th episode. But uh, I didn't want to get lost at the end of that last episode, so I'm doing it at the beginning of this episode. Yes. So if you leave a five-star review – and you write a comment, Fran and I are then going to pick through those comments and find which one probably, like, saps us up the most. And, yes. <laughs> and then we're going to send that person. We're going to reach well, out to him. And um, if, if you kiss up to me, I'll vote for you. Yeah. I'm a sucker for that. Yeah. Like, I guess yeah, we're going to have to figure out the logistics because they don't always have their name in that. 
So we'll have to announce who who we select on the podcast, and then they'll have to reach out to us so we can coordinate. And and we've done that in the past, yeah. and the person hasn't reached out to us. So yep. I'm hoping so. hoping that it's someone that that is a consistent listener that would hear mm-hmm. that. But 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 five star reviews really help us a lot, um, especially when you write something along with it. This is just a little motivation to to write something there so that we can give something back to you as well. And then the last thing is just an update and. Um, and I meant to tell you this earlier, friend, but I was going to say we should record our first A Native Plan Every Day episode right after this. That way, <laughs> in a couple of days when we were planning on doing it, we've already done that part. <laughs> you know, then we can record a bunch of them. I, this has been a crazier winter for us than normal. Typically, winter we, – and we've had this conversation on, on past podcasts that winter's busy. It's just a different kind of busy. Yep. This one's been because you, know, you have instances where maybe – uh, people are getting sick, and and it's yeah. just it, it's just making everything uh, super mm-hmm. super crazy. And we we have a bunch prepared. We just haven't had a chance to record them, yeah. so we just have to get through that process, yeah. get a bunch recorded, and then we'll start. Yeah. So start I, and so there. hopefully we'll have we'll, we should have that up by the end of the month. Like I said, our plan was to record them a little later this week. My suggestion is why don't we do the first one today? Okay. Let's do I don't one. know if, if, like, since we're in here and people don't know what we're doing in here, we can just do it. All right, and tie it in, and then uh, I could be prepared. I can grab them yeah. real quick, and and we could do that. Then That's we can, do, yeah, we can just tie it in, and then uh, then then later this week, then we can get a bunch of them, and then we can definitely get it out by the end of this month. The hardest part's going to be doing the first one and and the editing process for me because I exactly. we both have a vision, and we just have to see how hard it's going to be to create that vision yep. and kind of get one just under our belt so we we know what we're doing but my my biggest concern with that is that we want it to be 10 to 15 minutes <laughs> and we, yeah we know we're not good at that <laughs> but i want it to be that so we have to figure out even if i have to edit like i don't want it to go past 15 minutes mm-hmm. so we'll so, have to see yeah so they, yeah there's just a couple things that that popped up between now and our or but and then back to our last buzz that just happened in between there it's just been a while since we've been able to do this um, no, not because of the holiday and, and New the, Year and all that kind of stuff. So the, the shows have been consistent, yeah. but our recording hasn't been because we're yep. recording another one tomorrow. This and it's going to be one that airs before this one. So <laughs> it's is it really oh, wait no no, no, no this, this we're one doing is them next. Okay. Now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting. But because of everything going on, we've been having to record like sometimes a couple days in a row, so it gets a little confusing. So. But I think that's good. Good housekeeping. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's good. So now we can get started into the meat of this uh, this episode, and let's start like we always do with that's hot. That's hot. All right, who's going first? You're you're gonna go first. All right. So I went a little bit different, and it's something that I haven't witnessed personally being hot at this time of the year. But I've seen so many posts from people commenting on this plant, and it's native to here, even though I've never saw it occurring naturally it's mm-hmm. it's it's got a really good range but my pick for for this episode is partridge berry or twin berry which is michella repens mm-hmm. um ever this one and we've had this talk this always throws me off it's considered an evergreen herbaceous woody ground cover so woody and herbaceous to me always is hmm how how is that that's that's two different yeah. things but it is you know, were you the one that said it's like hibiscus, mosquitoes, yeah, swamp hibiscus? Yeah, it's, so it's it gets pretty big, gets woody, but kind of dies back to the base mm-hmm. and comes back every year. And there's definitely hey elderberry kind of 
does that a little bit where it's – I wouldn't call that woody herbaceous, but um, – so it's an evergreen ground cover mm. herbaceous. <coughs> um, kind of – it's kind of like a non-climbing vine the way it – Interesting. The, the way yeah, it grows. I'm, I'm not familiar with this plant at all. So it's a dark evergreen, shiny leaves. Uh, roots can grow at the nodes and uh, branch out and root repeatedly from there. So um, – it has twin flowers that are white to pink that bloom May through October, and then scarlet fruit that are eaten by grouse, uh, quail, turkey, and skunks. I was going to um, say, I bet those twin flowers result in twin berries. Hence that twin one? berry. Hence, <laughs> makes sense, hence twin right? berry, yeah. So, and it's the, – the fruit starts to come on in October and can persist through the winter. So right now people are seeing the berries uh, still kind of as they're walking through a- along the ground. Um, Native Native American women would drink a tea from the leaves to aid in childbirth. And uh, the plant likes shady, acid-loving conditions uh, that are dry to moist. So again, very specific conditions kind of like we talked about with wintergreen or tea berry and uh, bearberry. It's just – you know, th- those – those small native ground covers are really finicky, but um, uh, it is native from Maine to Florida, west to Texas, and north to Minnesota, and it's a facultative upland. So it, it's got a great native range to the east coast, just not something that I've really ever seen uh, in the wild, but uh, I think I might need some. Yeah, I I can't say I've – I wasn't familiar with the plant, so I can't say I've seen one either, but it yeah. does look very similar to wintergreen just off yeah. of a, a Google image search. Yeah. So no, that's very cool. So you know, we always talk about native ground covers, mm-hmm. and and there you go, a, another one that you know it's success wise. Like I said, it's it's got to be the pretty right conditions. And I'd love to hear from our listeners on this if if they have it planted or occurring naturally on their properties, Definitely. and uh, if they've had any success or or failure with it. So we'd love to hear back about that as well. Yeah, so definitely. we always uh, put the post out. On the Pinelands Nursery page um, mm-hmm. with our That's Hot Choices. So if, if you can respond back to that, just let us know how you make up with that. I'd love the feedback. Yeah. So my choice was uh, Solid Ego Candensis, which is Car- uh, not Carolina Goldenrod, Canada <laughs> Goldenrod. <laughs> and um, and that's a plant that is native basically north of – I was just looking at the map here. It's north of – where'd it go? Basically north of Virginia. Um, up into Canada and then west out to uh, like what's it, Kansas, Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas, yeah. um, and it looks like it's only on the eastern edge of some of those states. But it's a plant around here; it can really, really take over. And um, and a lot of people are probably thinking, "Why is Tom talking about a plant that has no seasonal interest <laughs> like, <laughs> like now?" And I'll get to that. But uh, it's a fast-growing perennial, blooms from July to October, uh, is host for a lot of predatory beneficial insects, which is a really good thing because those are the things that are going to eat your, your a lot of your pesky insects as well. Uh, they eat a lot of insects, but including your pesky insects. Um, provides uh, a food source for birds in the fall, uh, can spread really rapidly through rhizomes underground, um, and also self-seeds. It is really uh, an early successional meadow plant. So it's one of those things when you, uh, when you have like an old farm field and you kind of let it go, it's one of the things you're going to see fairly, fairly uh, early on in that that succession plan for that uh, feather or for that meadow. Uh, it gets about six feet tall. It's facultative up plant. I got a lot of this information from either our website or Jersey Friendly Yards. And like I said, why am I talking about this now? <laughs> Is because 
of I've seen a lot of posts of goldenrod goldenrod galls, which are caused by the goldenrod gall fly, um, and I guess there's a couple different ones, but one of the species that is targeted by those those insects is Canada goldenrod, and uh, it's basically it forms like a little grub or a little worm that goes in there, and then they eat and eat and eat, and it kind of makes a little balloon. If you've seen oh. these galls. Uh, and this will happen in the fall when the stem is still green. And it'll start to balloon. Eventually, it'll harden. The worm or the grub will kind of chew a little hole almost to the edge of the, the gall. And um, so it can tunnel out. And it goes back in and uh, and kind of overwinters in there. And eventually, in the early spring, it starts to pupate. And as time goes on, eventually it becomes a, a fly, busts open, and uh, the gall and, and flies away. In between there, right around now, those things are in there just kind of hanging out. And um, and they make, I've heard, make great fishing bait this time of Ooh, year for like early season, right. like winter, early spring uh, fishing bait. Okay. And um, and my brother has a great video. And I thought he learned this from someone else, but I don't know. Well, he learned, I thought he learned it from another person in the seed industry, but he apparently taught that old timer <laughs> this, this really? trick is that they're edible <laughs> and oh. you can eat them yourself. And he has a really cool Instagram video he made a couple of years ago where he's finding them and saying, oh, this is one of my favorite snacks. They kind of taste like maple syrup. And he has <laughs> a whole of these descriptors. But I, I haven't tried one. But uh, seeing all these pictures, because people are taking pictures of them now because they are a lot more obvious than when you have all the flowers and green leaves and everything. Yeah. You kind of have bare stems, and then you see a gall on there. It sticks out a little more when you're on a winter hike. So I've been seeing a lot of pictures of them online. So, right, so maybe your brother, your brother can collect some and come on the next yeah. buzz, and we can eat them. Yeah, and he see was. What we we were out in um, visiting a, a seed producer out in Western PA, and we were in one of their fields, and he was pointing it out. And I, I was away from the conversation, so I thought it was uh, the, the guy there pointing it out to my brother, saying, "Hey, you can eat these." But my brother was telling him, "No, you can eat them." They're cracking these <laughs> <laughs> these goldenrod galls and eating them together. And my brother had probably stashed a couple dozen in his pockets. Yeah. And then he was eating them in the car ride on the way back. And we had a six-hour car ride. He's eating them in the car and then taking the galls, the cracked open galls, and leaving them, like, in the cup holder. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's still probably galls in in that truck because he was just leaving them there instead of throwing them out the window or anything. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's if you're on a hike and you see a golden round gall, that's a nice little snack. Now you know. Awesome. All right. I definitely want to try that. We keep talking about some of these. You know. I love uh, – so I know your wife and also Alyssa Lewis have been going mm-hmm. through and, and uh, listening to the old episodes. And Alyssa will every now and then like shoot me a message saying, hey, remember you guys talked about this and you, you wanted to revisit it. And I'm like, oh, man, I forget. We have a lot of great ideas that we just never <laughs> – never. and I laugh at all the times where we're like, all right, we have an episode coming up. What should we do? Yeah. And we should be referring to that list. And, we, oh, we yeah, should probably we follow know. back. <laughs> so, yeah. Goldenrod Gall, we have to. Yeah, maybe for next time. Well, I'll, I'll go out and get some. And, uh, and, yeah. All right. And All we'll right. try. Them. Or that can be because we we did smelling seeds. We wanted to be taste. We wanted to do tasting plants. Maybe that can yeah. be one yeah. of the things that we taste yeah. and try to guess. Now so. I'm thinking maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> But all right, good well, choice. Mo- moving along, we're gonna get ready for our uh, our botany based current events, and of course, we make it a competition. Let's move along to this or that. So uh, the articles that we're voting, and it's been so long. I mean, when th- we're we're going back yeah. to mid December, we're going back at least a month on this. So um, 
it was my article on insects having feelings and mm-hmm. Tom's article about uh, light pollution from Christmas lights, mm-hmm. uh, which both actually kind of tie in together as far as – because we're talking about insects having yeah. feeling and light pollution from, from mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So an epic, epic amount of people voted this time, and we do have a winner. I won 42 to 25. Yeah, which was surprising because I looked at one point and I was up like 22 to 18. And I'm like, okay, I probably have this one in the bag. This is about how many votes we get. And uh, and someone must have alerted the the <laughs> war on the war on Christmas crowd <laughs> because they rallied and and made sure to well, put me it's down. Funny, like I could see that there were shares of the post, but I couldn't see who any of the shares yeah. were. So someone rallied behind me and had some people behind it. But at one point, it was tied. Like oh, it was tied for a long for time, a and there was people long... rooting for the ties and yeah. changing their votes so that they would remain tied. You, and... you know, I will say this: I'm. You know, and and I blame ourselves because we made making a tie entertaining yeah. podcasting. But I I really and and if if it turns out as a tie, I'm okay if it just happens to be a tie. But I think voting for a tie kinda lessens the impact of the articles that we're we're approaching. Like if you really like one more than the other like don't lessen the statement of the article just for the sake of entertaining podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> like if it, it just happens to be a tie, that's great. But I'm wondering if we should say the next tie, it's just a tie and there's no winner to discourage yeah, Or we can make it entertaining. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it – the punishment for a tie is – unentertaining podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, it's, and I, I, I guess I shouldn't complain because I think I won all three tiebreakers. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a good, good streak going. Yeah. And maybe that's just my way of maintaining the streak and never having a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have my, I have something something up my sleeve for the next tie. Do you really? (laughs) Uh, Don't, don't encourage, don't encourage. All right. So as, as the winner, I'm going to choose to go first. Okay. Um, you know, and it's funny. I I typically look for something that is interesting, like something I really didn't know or something pressing or new science. And I chose an article that I typically wouldn't choose because just out of curiosity of what the selections mm-hmm. were. So the name of the article is 12 Best Native Plants for Northern Gardeners. And I was like, oh, I wonder what the plants are mm-hmm. that – that this person chose, and and would I agree that they're twelve, the twelve best? But uh, the article is by Susan Martin, and it's on FamilyHandyman.com. And uh, as always, I'm going to highlight uh, a few paragraphs and read, um, and then I'm going to go through the twelve selections that they made to see if uh, if both Tom and I agree. So, looking for new native plants for USDA Zone Three landscape, these shrub. These shrubs, perennials, and grasses can survive temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. How to choose native plants for northern climates. Stand in any wild green space and you'll see the incredible diversity of nature. Some native species have been growing here for centuries while selections of those plants or new plants made by crossing species have given rise to native cultivars. Most garden centers tend to sell cultivars, but specialty nurseries and mail order sources offer a broader range of native species. Here we'll describe some of each. Shopping for native plants isn't much different from shopping from other perennials and shrubs. Some key features to look for when picking the best specimen off the bench include healthy, richly colored foliage with signs of 
without signs of extensive insect damage or disease. I completely disagree with that statement because to me that shows maybe something that has been heavily sprayed Mm -hmm. and isn't getting any insect interaction. Like we always talk about you want plants that are – that are contributing to the food web and are getting eaten. I, I want to see a plant that's that is exhibiting that. So I I kind of disagreed with that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, signs of new growth, which okay, um, I'm okay with that. Straight, non-crossing or rubbing branches on woody plants. Just one thing to remember that that is good. That's something that you can prune out. But a lot of native plant growers aren't pruning for ornamental values. Mm-hmm. It's more health and provenance. Yeah. So it. Don't let that be a limiting factor unless it's something really bad that if you were to prune it out, you're not going to have much yeah, of a plant yeah. left. Um, and then a plant that matches the picture on the label so that you know you're buying the right variety. Um, look at the – to me, I don't know that necessarily you need to – if you know your plants have to have a picture, but just make sure it lists the botanical name because so many common names mm. um, are, are very similar. Um we're focusing here on extremely hardy native shrubs, perennials, and ornamental grasses that tolerate the extremes of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Hardiness Zone Z, uh, three, uh, sorry, uh, minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Our list includes plants that bloom throughout the year as well as some evergreen and many perennial uh, pollinators that pollinators adore. Let's take a closer look. They mention um, popular cultivars for each of these two. So I looked that they actually said mm-hmm. here's a straight species. Here's some popular cultivars. I'm actually excited. This is my first buzz with new glasses. I can actually read. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So and it's not like number 12 is the best. I'm just going to read the the 12 items. Mm. So winterberry holly, which is Ilex fertisolata, which I I agree. That's a great plant. Definitely. Common nine bark, which is Physocarpus opulus. That's one I think that gets overlooked a lot. It is a good it, – it is yeah. a really good garden yep. plant, but I think as far as restoration goes, we don't see it as often as mm-hmm. we like. Now, I don't know how naturally occurring it is in a lot of these places as well. Um, Eastern white cedar, which is Thuya oxenentalis, which is something that's not really native to here. It's more north. But, but up where there, she's yeah. writing from, it would be. Which is a great, great uh, evergreen, uh, native evergreen. Oxide daisy, which is Helianthus helianthoides, which we, we love. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Uh, New England aster, which is Symphiotrichum novi angliae, uh, another great – you know, I, I love that one as well. Culver's root, Veronicastrum virginicum, which I've recently become a big fan of, mm-hmm. of that plant. And um, now uh, Bruce Crawford uh, wrote a really, really good write-up on Culver's root probably in the – I think it was end of the summer. And um, that's something I got to dig up and I'll put in the group. But he like did a really good write-up on – why it's a really good garden plant, how it's good for all different, like different other things and wildlife and, um, and how to use it in gardens. And, and it's, a uh, it was good to see that from him where he focused really yeah. in depth on native. He, he provides some really great write-ups all the time. That was one I got to share because it was actually really, really good. And I've recently added that yeah. one to my garden. So I'm excited about that. Uh, tall garden flocks, flocks paniculata, which I think mm-hmm. in Northern climates, it's less likely to get powdery mildew. Okay. Um, Anise hyssop, which is Agastache funiculum, uh, great as far as pollinators go. They, that's yeah, that's that's a favorite. Helen's flower, which is Hellenium Hellenium autumnal, uh, another great one. Uh, Joe pie weed, Eupatorium mm-hmm. purpureum, which yeah, we could wax poetic about that one all day. Uh, Oak sedge, which is Carex pensilvanica. Um, that one's a little more specific, I think, because it does need 
like sandier, more well-drained mm-hmm. soil. Um, and then big blue stem, which is Andropogon girardii, which is a great, great plant. Yeah. So oh, they, yeah. I think it, it was a it was a really good overview of some evergreens, some shrubs uh, that have um, like things with berries for for good pollinator sources, and it, it's a good mix of herbaceous material because, mm-hmm. like she said, she mixed up. Um, bloom times and also conditions so mm-hmm. there was kind of something for each condition uh so overall i thought it was a really good article i think anyone who is whether they know their native plants or just getting into native plants would come away really well informed mm-hmm. and and have good success planting and i, I kind of yeah, like that i look at that list and say you could make a really really nice garden plan that was functional provided in forward for pollinators provided food sources for larval, larval stages provided for birds just out of that list. And um, it, you could make it look more natural mm-hmm. or you can make it look more formal. Yeah. Uh, cause oh, yeah. they're all things that like all things that respond very well to, to pruning. Mm-hmm. So you could easily take something that's all native and give it a more formal look if you want it or a more traditional garden look. Yeah. Uh, or you could let it, let it be more wild. And there's, there's a lot of good layering in Four there. Four seasons too. of interest. They, Four it's season. a really good list. Like you could have oxeye daisy with, with, um, Tall garden flocks mm-hmm. in front of it, like good color combinations, good height differences. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was it was a really good list. I, th- like I said, there were a couple things that I, I mentioned that I kind of maybe would have changed it a little bit. But I think this is a great primer for anyone in the Northeast looking to to to, to start with native plants that they would have good success with this list. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's that's yeah. a, not my traditional article. But yeah, no, I think I it's, was a, just it's a good primer and it's yeah. it's probably reaching some people who aren't necessarily interested in native plants maybe they've heard the phrase but don't really know a lot about it don't know to get how to get their feet wet yeah. they're interested they want to dip their toe in but they don't know even know where to start well that's a list that is probably a good good pretty good place to start that explains it in terms that they already understand um and i think it's things that are are relatively easy to grow yeah and 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 not a lot of maintenance mm-hmm. to you know like I always think about the the flocks with with powdery mildew. I don't think you're getting that up north, but you could plant any of these and not worry about like a lot of disease yeah. issues or hey I you, you know even if you're you, you don't have a green thumb, mm-hmm. some of these are are, are pretty pretty you, you can put them in and walk away and be okay. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> one of the things that, that threw me off in the beginning of your article is it um. They started talking about the the USDA zones, zones yeah. and I'm like, I don't even know what the, <laughs> the zones yeah. are. Well, I had to look it up. What I was like, where is Zone Three? Because I, I know it's north of here, but I have no yeah, idea. Because we're Zone Six, we're zones, yeah, I think. So at where we're at, I didn't so. know that until I just looked it up a couple yeah. minutes ago. I I always forget what zone we are. So the higher the number, the cold hardier it is. The lower mm-hmm. the number, it's warmer climate. So if you were ten, I know it would be. South of us, if you're three, I know it's north of us. Mm-hmm. So, and that's always, you know, when dealing with native plants, we really kind of guide people to know what's native to your area. And we don't mm-hmm. really go by zones. Zones, you kind of, if you don't know the plant material and it's not native to there, that's the best way to match up uh, hardiness yep. is by zones. Yep. But if you're dealing with native plants and it's native there, you don't have to worry what the hardiness zone, just if, as long as you have the right. Uh, hydrology, mm-hmm. soil type, um, and and you know your wetland indicator status. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're good. 
Yeah, definitely. And so it's not something we deal in ornamental horde. It's something you deal with all yeah. the time in in native horde. We don't really do. That was a little extra take it or leave it for you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to do that. Uh, yeah, we'll have to do that in a future episode. So no, that was a good article. I I actually really enjoyed that article. Uh, just listening to you talk about it. Uh, my article this week was uh, top wins for birds and people in 2021. And this was just published on um, on Audubon dot org, and it's kind of a breakdown of some a lot of the things that they had their hands in um, at Audubon, uh, the National Audubon Society. Okay. And um, so, a little bit snippet of that article was: This year, our conf- conservation leaders, bird advocates, college students, ambassadors, volunteers, and scientists accomplished amazing things. Through early December, more than one hundred seventy thousand of us contacted decision makers. More than uh, one. I'll just round up the over 1 million times on behalf of the birds. All the accomplishments listed below come from the hard work and dedication of our members, chapters, volunteers, and staff. We're very proud of what we have been able to accomplish together over the last 12 months. Uh, some of the things, and I just kind of compiled the list and took out some of the stuff that was, um, it was a really long list. I'll put it, <laughs> put it that. I, I took some out. <laughs> so, and uh, so some of the things were restoring the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and making it stronger, bringing uh, climate resilience to infrastructure, supporting bipartisan federal climate legislation, supporting indigenous stewardship in Can- uh, Canada's boreal forests, reinstating key management plans for greater sage-grouse in the West, supporting critical restoration projects in Louisiana, securing funding for and support for the Great Lakes restoration, protecting 300,000 acres of wetlands throughout the Great Lakes region, defending our coastlines against illegal sand mining, halting land giveaways to, to mining companies in Alaska, fostering bipartisan support to protect a critically important watershed, which that watershed is the Delaware River watershed, which uh, is right in our backyard. Yes. So I wanted to go in a little bit more of that. That one in particular, they said in April, U.S. Representatives Antonio Delgado, uh, from, who's a Democrat from New York's 19th District, and Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a Republican from uh, Pennsylvania's 1st District, so this is bipartisan and across the aisle, um, announced the formation of the Congressional Delaware River Watershed Caucus. The caucus will serve as an informal bipartisan group of members of Congress dedicated to issues related to Delaware River watershed and its landscape scale programs focused on water quality and quantity, ecological restoration and conservation. The watershed provides life-sustaining resources to a wide array of birds, from the saltmarsh sparrows, golden wing warbler, and wood thrush to the ruddy duck, red knot, and American black duck. And it supplies drinking water to more than 13.3 million people. Um, so that's just something cool they did. Wow, that is pretty awesome. A couple other things they reinstated or helped reinstate three national monuments restoring federal safeguards to globally significant wetlands, securing water for Great Salt Lake wetlands, um, helping black skimmers nest again on the Gulf, on and on and on the list goes. And that was a trim down. I just trimmed it down even more. I probably trimmed over (laughs) half of their accomplishments this year. What a great list of accomplishments. I mean, you know, and that's something when you think of where where money goes. And that was my point. And that – the. You can go on this article, and we, we have the link on our, our website, and we'll put it on our Facebook page too. You'll see the link for this article, and you'll click, and you can dive into any one of their projects. They have a little blurb about, you, yeah. about each one that I did I cut out of, of this as well. We'd be Probably here for an hour. Forever. Yeah. But um, this is just a great example of what you're, you're buying into when you support an organization like um, the Audubon Society. If you go... And you do, I don't even know what their membership or donation is, but um, but you go and donate to that organization. And it doesn't have to be Audubon. It could be the Xerxes Society. It could be Backcountry Hunters, Anglers, Ducks Unlimited, 
uh, New Jersey Native Plant Society. These organizations are coming together and um, and doing stuff. A lot of times, on if you join a, a state level or a local organization, they're going to do stuff on your state and local level. They're going to impact your everyday life a lot more. But some of these national organizations, they're doing stuff nationally. And some of it's going to happen in your backyard. Some of it's going to happen all the way across the countries, up north, down south. It's going to be all over the place. But it's a really, really important thing to to be involved in if you can to give up the 25 30 bucks it typically costs to join some of these organizations. Yeah. Your money goes a long way because they have the teams in place to really dedicate to particular uh, things that are coming up. They have people who are educated in legislation and policy work. So, and they have the connections in Washington or in your state state governments that okay, we need to to save the whatever bird or this wetland or this thing. They know who to contact already and sit down and say, "Hey, this is what's why it's important to us." And they can have that voice of reason a lot more easily than I would if I tried to get in touch with them. I've tried to get in touch with like <laughs> either state assembly people or like in and congressmen and women senators really trying to get them on this podcast and I have gotten a lot of <laughs> a lot of non-responses <laughs> from that stuff. So um so it's something that when you join these kind of organizations, it can really, really go a long way. Um, your dollars can go a long way into supporting. And again, Audubon isn't a a native plant organization no, per se, not at all. But a lot you of can these, see yeah. so many of those. It's protecting those areas from from development. It's restoring those areas. It's um, it's contributing contrib- to the food yeah, web. Contributing the food web. The things that are good for the birds are native plants which are going to lead to more insects, more habitat. So it all kind of ties back to native plants. Same thing with the Xerxes Society. They're not a native plant organization. They're an insect, an yeah. invertebrate organization. But for the invertebrates to, to thrive, the native plants and, and the habitat needs to thrive. Same things with Ducks Unlimited. Same thing with National Wild Turkey Federation and all these organizations we're having on. They all tie back to native plants. The other thing I'll point out is I know from um, there was one of these on here talking about sage grouse. And I've gotten a lot of emails about sage grouse, but it's from some of these hunting conversa- or yeah. conservation groups. Like I think Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, I know backcountry hunters and anglers sent stuff out. These all these organizations are working together because having more sage grouse isn't just good for birders in the Audubon group. It's good for a lot of these other outdoor uh, organizations. So find the organizations that are passionate about what you're passionate about. When you can donate money, become a member, do those kind of things, get involved. If you can, if you have the time to get involved even more with local chapters, even with the national level, it can really go a long, long way and, yeah, and in, you, in the long run. And sometimes you never hear about how that money gets spent. So it's nice to see so many, so many great things happen and, and you mm-hmm. get to actually know about it. Um, yeah. You know, like, like, like you say, if you don't know, now you know. Yeah. And that's <laughs> one of the things if you're, are affiliated with some of these organizations, make sure you put out lists like this. Because a lot of people, they'll uh, become a member of an association or an organization and you, you're going to, um, you're paying your, your annual dues. And then people sometimes have that, that click in their brain. What's my money even doing? Like, yeah. why I'm not really seeing any benefit from this. Yeah. If you're higher up in one of these organizations, make sure that your membership is getting a list saying, this is what your dollars are going to. This is what your time is going to. And it is making a difference. You know what? 
It's been a really long time, but I have a complaint. Oh, that's good. Not that I want to complain. So I've I've been taking a more active role in in donating myself, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not going to say the organization, but uh, it was a, a more uh, natural areas uh, organization, and I got a Christmas card from the organization, and for some reason it upset me because the first thing I did when I grabbed the Christmas card was, is this how my donation got spent? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's not, you know. I started thinking about how many people got this card, how much did they cost, how mm-hmm. much postage, what, how much volunteer time went, and it was a very nice gesture, and I'm sure it was meant as a nice gesture. And I actually kind of feel a little guilty complaining about it. But you know, you're looking at all these great things and how the money can be spent, and I kind of felt like, oh, I I really could have done without this, yeah. <laughs> and I wish maybe. It hadn't been spent this way, um, you know. And maybe I, I don't know. Maybe that's the one way that they reach out to their their base that that donates once a year. Mm-hmm. And maybe if that's the case, because I have no, uh, I've had no other interaction with the organization that I donated money to, other than getting the holiday card. So I don't know. I, I kind of felt like my <laughs> for such a nice gesture. My first reaction was disappointment. And it's it's not deterring me from donating to them in the future. It's just not – I would have rather have had – if it was a holiday card that tied in and say what your contributions, we were able to mm-hmm. accomplish this this year. But it didn't have any yeah. of that. Yeah. It was just, you know, at this time of the year, we want to thank you for your contributions. And I was like, oh, you know, an email would have been mm-hmm. sufficient and probably and cheaper. Um, I'm trying to remember where I've seen something like that, but it's like – well, I I made a, a right at the end of the year. I made a or we made. I shouldn't say I made it. I I did it for the nursery, yeah. but we made a contribu- contribution to Ducks Unlimited, and um and they give out all kinds of gifts and and stuff like it's usually yeah. like t shirts and pullovers, those kind of things. Yeah. And uh, but they have a checkbox saying, "Oh, I don't want this stuff. I want all my money to go to conservation." You can make that choice. They give you the option, and maybe that's and something like that, that a lot of some of these organizations can start doing and saying, yeah. "Hey." Just send me an email updating me on on what's going on, and but I don't need the, the extra stuff. Yeah, I like. <laughs> I know, I know it's horrible, but I'm like, oh, you're supposed to be conserving trees, and you just <laughs> killed a tree to to send me this. Like, I I don't know. I was just really kind of. I wasn't expect. It, it's not something where I would have been like, man, I need to get a holiday card from this organization mm-hmm. this year. I'm really upset. You know, yeah. it's. I don't know. It it was a nice gesture. I just yeah. and and like I said, I'm 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 feeling extremely guilty, like being disappointed right now. I do want to point out how all those all those people voted for you to to save Christmas, <laughs> and here you are being a, being a Grinch right in their face. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I don't know. It's that was my complaint. But it's been a while. It's been it's, a while, yeah. You you deserve the right to complain on air every once in a while. Thank you. <laughs> Not <laughs> that I'm one to complain. Why don't we move along to listener shout-outs? Sure. Listener, listener, shout-out. So I know it's not filled on on the form for you that I have. Oh, so I, I'm, yeah, I added one, but I for, I didn't do it before I sent it So to it's going to be a surprise. So I'm actually <laughs> – do you want me to go or you want to go? Um, why don't you go first? Mine's so, pretty quick. Okay, so is mine. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Margaret Woolett. 
uh, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and Margaret sent us a, an email through our website uh, for the podcast, and because we've been grubbing for for questions and comments, then she was kind of surprised we hadn't had questions and and sent us a, a, a few questions via via email. And we're very and she had some nice words and went along with it. And we were really happy for the the kind of email and for you reaching out. And then I, I felt bad because I said, "Well, we really will only answer the questions <laughs> if you call the question and comment line and and leave those questions on that." And and Margaret didn't call, so I hope we didn't deter you from listening or or leaving a question. But please call call the question and comment line. And we actually I'm excited because we have mm-hmm. numerous after complaining for. For yeah. numerous weeks, people yeah. called in with with questions. I'm worried about Saul. Like again, I heard no, from him in a while. No, yeah. I mean he he called in to 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 pick the winner for our draw Saul mm-hmm. contest, and I haven't really haven't heard from him since. Yeah, maybe you should reach out. I should probably give him. And, I should probably reach out. Him, I should yeah. probably give him a call and make <laughs> so, sure he's doing okay. Yeah. But that's that's my listener shout out yeah. for this episode. My listener this week was uh, Joe Kubik, and he was one of the people who I had a, a nice conversation with through Instagram Messenger oh, awesome. about the whole vegetarian vegan thing and what we were. And because and that was really really keyed me off. I'm like, oh, maybe I didn't say that as clear as I thought I did. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I was I was really happy to have that interaction. Um, when people write to us, I try and get back to everyone I can. So I know there's some that I've probably missed in the past, but I, it's uh, it's one of the things that we like to hear your ideas because it helps steer where we're going to go. You know, and I, I do want to say too that throughout the time that we've done this, when we get listener feedback, we don't always agree. You know, mm-hmm. and we we had really great conversations though in the times that we didn't. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying you didn't agree on that one, just. Like on instances like that, we've had some of our best conversations mm-hmm. with yeah. with some of our listeners, and 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 become friends with with those listeners. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's we always appreciate whether you're feeling the vibe or you're not agreeing with us that you reach out and talk to us about it because we we love that interaction. It's always been always been positive. So yeah. I'm looking at the next part where I said I don't have any complaints. Yeah, but you but, already did that. Yeah, so I already complained. I guess we're on to questions. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. It's a simple question. Um, no, I didn't hear you. What was your question? So I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that this first question is the person that you were just talking about with the conversation on Instagram. I'm not positive. I think I, they're different. Really? I'm pretty sure I they're different. I thought it was the same it's, person. But they, they've had um, – they, it was <laughs> funny because I think they're both named Joe, some two of the people we interacted with yeah. on that. But um, – no, because this I'm pretty sure he's in uh, Massachusetts. Okay, so all right, so let's let's play the first question. Out in Seattle, and uh, these days, usually when I'm planning out a planting for a client, um, planting a garden, I like to kind of open up my imagination um, by going and looking up the the historic flora of the area. We have herbarium records going back about a century and a half. And so sometimes I might be like, okay, east side of Lake Washington, what has been collected there a century ago? Or here in the city, you know, we don't really have anything analogous because this is an artificial area. So we, I might go out and get the, check the flora of the San Juan Islands nearby to see what, what, what grows in a drier but nearby climate. Um, however, my parents recently moved to Pittsburgh and I somehow have managed to co- convince them to rip out the front yard and plant native plants. My dad has put down the uh, the, the sheet mulching 
and but um I don't really know how to guide them in the the flora of the flora that exists out east. Um now normally I would go to the consortium of the consortium of Northwest Herbaria and and then uh compare that to some of the information that we have from our our local herbarium at the University of Washington. But I I just don't know what these resources are out east. Um so uh what do you what are your recommendations out your way for uh finding that historic flora data? And that was Joe. The the beginning got cut off a little bit because Joe kind of restarted his his message, and I, I I was trying to leave that part out, so the the first part got cut off a little bit. Now the the funny thing is, I I I have a lot of the resources for the the north northwest that you've mentioned, like the Consortium of Pacific Northwest Herbaria, um, Flora of the Pacific Northwest, you know, and and there's plenty of other people. I I think. In, that area has a better history. I think so much of of the East Coast was destroyed, mm-hmm. and then it, restarted. Restarted. <laughs> you know, when I think I, I saw a pretty interesting talk probably about ten years ago. And I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, but he was talking about the forest in Pennsylvania, saying there's no original forest left in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It's all probably at this point third generation because of all the logging that's occurred. So when you think of all the damage that's happened, no one was really keeping a good record of of that information. And I know Tom and I, and and, and we talk about this. I think it's um, New Jersey. Was it New Jersey Wild Plants? Is the the book that we go back to? That's probably like fifty, sixty years mm-hmm. old, and it's so outdated at this point. I, like in looking at them and what what we know today, I don't even know how accurate that is. So I don't even know, especially for for that, what a good resource would be other than – like personally, I look at bone apps for just mm-hmm. about everything yeah. because it, it gives you really good resource data as far as counties. And that compiles a yeah. lot of that. But it's – if you're trying to find like a list, that's really hard. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to look at it by, by – I guess by family group. And sort it out from there. But I'm just looking at so <laughs> when we record to get my computer up a little higher, yeah. I have it on a stack of books, and I'm looking at a book called The Herbaceous Plants of Maryland, and uh, <laughs> and the one called The Plants of Pennsylvania by Rhodes and Block. The first one, uh, Herbaceous Plants of Maryland, is by Brown and Brown. And um, we have a whole bookshelf that's over my shoulder. That's yeah. <laughs> that's probably got a bunch of them on there too. But that's probably what I would do is consult. And it's hard to do online, especially out west. But yeah. try and find some of these these books that'll help you out. Um, and again, I I, th- I really think that the the northwest is a little better documented from what I've seen than than out here on the east, um, as far as traditional flora goes. Um, you know, we talked about it in the New Jersey wild plants. They list things that you know it depends on what you consider historical <laughs> you know because yeah. it's I, I think it it was um so many things had changed and they just went by what i think they visibly saw when they surveyed uh and if it was native to the area but not necessarily if it belonged there um cuz they kind of break it down by county it's a good mm-hmm. it's a good starting point i shouldn't say that it's worthless it's it's a it's a very good book and we consult it all the time yeah, and that but you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. That book is by Mary Y. Howe, 
It's H O U G H, and okay. that's I pulled it off our bookshelf Thank right here. Yeah. So yeah, those are a couple books that that we have here in the office. But um, yeah, that's a, a tougher question, especially when, we, especially when we we might have misheard it the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, yes, yes. So it's um, you know, just roughly that's the the best info we have. I'm sure our listeners, a, a mm-hmm. good portion of our listeners, are in the East Coast, and maybe they have some that they go by. Uh, we we consult a lot of websites like Jersey Friendly Yards, I, which I think is a great one. Mm-hmm. Bone apps and the uh, plants.usda.gov, as far yeah. as just some yeah. uh, data as to if you're looking at a specific plant, if it's native. But it's you know we know you know this is something that we've talked about because current legislation we know Circus canadensis is native to New Jersey. But at this point, it's very rare in where it occurs, and traditionally, you're going back. You know, it, it doesn't really exist in a lot of places. It may have existed in a hundred years ago, and it probably won't exist there again. And it's um, some of that data is because so much has occurred and so much has been disturbed, especially with deer pressure now. Mm-hmm. Like it's you may not be able to get with the deer pressure that you have here historically what it was. Um, 100 years ago. But I think another great place to check would be the Bowman's Hill Wallflower Preserve. That's what I was just looking up. And because um, they, they probably now that's other side of the state, but they'll yes. have some yeah. some different records. Um, just to, going online a little bit. And uh, all I did was search. Uh, what did I search? Pennsylvania Historical Plant Records. Okay. And there's uh, the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program, which I'm not familiar with but they look like they might have some information um on that kind of stuff listed and then another one that popped into mind as we were kind of talking a little bit was uh what's it southeastern grasslands initiative not that they would be pertinent so much to the pittsburgh area but they did a really good job of using historical text and not necessarily plant text um but different like travel journals really of people's talking about what they we're seeing just when they were traveling through that part of the country. So it's going to take a little research. Map, so. yeah. It's going to take a little yeah. research, but hopefully we gave you a few resources that will help you along that way. And I, it's, I think it's fantastic that you've been able to uh, – that you use this information for what you do and that you were mm-hmm. able to convince your parents to, to go in that direction also. So um, – I wish you the best of luck with it, and if you have follow up questions with that, we'd love to hear. It. We'd love to hear just how that goes as you pro- definitely as you progress. So, we do have a second question, and I'm going to play that one now. Hi, Fran and Tom. My name is Evan. I'm calling from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Love the show, and I have a question for you. Uh, I live in the urban core of Montreal. I've got a townhouse without a big yard, a small side yard on the northern side, so pretty shady. Um, but I've got balconies and a roof, and I'm looking to participate in the food web and help some of the uh, creatures uh, around my home. Um, so I'm looking for plant suggestions, uh, both for my eco-region, but also Suggestions for urban dwellers in general. How can we be participating and uh, using native plants uh, in our homes in the city? 
Thanks a lot. So I think that's a, a great question, and, and I love that even though your conditions are a little more urban that you're thinking native and how you can help that food web where where they need it most, maybe where they don't have as very many options. So um, we we tried to look for things that were, were native to Quebec um, that can do well in a planter size-wise on a balcony um, and that can take part shade based on – on all those conditions you gave us. And I was very happy to see that a good portion of these items are, are all natives that we're, we're familiar with <laughs> yeah. also. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, the first one was Penstem and Hirsutis, which is hairy beard tongue. And uh, it stays very manageable, does well in a pot, attracts pollinators, butterflies, and hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. Another one on this list was uh, was Aquilegia canadensis, which is uh, – Columbine. columbine or there's a, yeah. a another descriptor i'll see in front of columbine sometimes it's scarlet columbine red columbine uh, I, I think it's red columbine and um that attracts pollinators butterflies and hummingbirds as well and that blooms really early so yeah. you're kind of diversifying that uh, flower time um an artificialosa which is wild bergamot i have uh i've had that in a planter and it you know over time it kind of you know some of these you may have to rotate over time it's kind of like like not hasn't performed as well over time. Like the first couple of years it did well and mm-hmm. then kind of tapered off. Um, but that will attract uh, pollinators, butterflies, and hummingbirds as well. A couple more if you wanted to try with um, something that can you can take it or takes it a little wet. Actually yeah. likes it a little wetter but yeah. can take it dry as well. Is Iris Versicolor is a really good one that attracts pollinators, blooms early in the year. And then uh, Chelone gla- uh, Glabra um, is white turtle head. And that will attract pollinators, butterflies, and hummingbirds as well. And that's a great choice. Uh, you know, and right now we we've thrown a mix of colors at you: uh, columbine red, the wild bergamot being uh, like lavender, mm-hmm. uh, blue flag iris, and then chillin globber, which is white. Um, Cornus canadensis, which is bunchberry, which is more of a ground cover, can take shade, stay low. You get that cornus like uh, traditional dogwood type flower on it, and it, it's and that will attract birds. Yeah. And uh, bloodroot. Uh, Sanguinaria canadensis uh, also will attract uh, pollinators. So I, we try to give you a good mix of sizes, heights that you can put on a balcony, really contribute to the food web, add color for pollinators mm-hmm. uh, all throughout the season. And it's all native to your – hopefully to the, the the area that you're in, yeah. in in Montreal. Yeah, and it's it's a tricky condition because you're – you're confined into how much you can do. It's uh, it's typically not something where you have a permanent spot you can put something. And, um, yeah, so you got to bend the rules a little bit, and containers are a great way to do that. Yeah. Now, it's the, the only thing I'm not sure of as far as winter in a planter, you may have to bring those planters inside. You know, mm-hmm. Preferably, you would want to not cut them back over the winter and leave them out so that you're still attracting uh, birds and wildlife for, for that food source or insects. But it may be something, depending on how harsh your winter is, that you may need to to bring in to protect. Yeah. I'm wondering if you just kind of tucked it up against the building and then, like, I'm not an expert on this part by by any means, but you tucked it up against the building and kind of just protected the outside yeah. of the pot so that the roots didn't yeah. didn't dry out. Like, you yeah. don't get that wind desiccation. Mm. You're able to protect it a little bit around the outside. Maybe some some and frost then you blanket the, around the it for heat. Heat from the building will will protect at least the back side of it. And it then, may be hard on a balcony, yeah. but a little yeah. like a bale of hay or something like that mm-hmm. around it just to protect yeah. it over the winter may 
may help it yeah. a little bit. I'm sure so. the people below the balcony <laughs> would love, love that. Yeah, love be that cognizant part. of the weight that you're allowed on the balcony. But I, I think those are some. Oh, I was talking about all the hay blowing the, around. Well, if you left <laughs> it in the bale and kind of, yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't want to top it. You don't want it blowing away. <laughs> but, I, you know, it was nice to see that we had such great thoughtful questions mm. oh, yeah. um, after not having – after having a few episodes without questions. Those were fantastic questions, and we appreciate you calling in, and hopefully we answered those to your satisfaction. And like I said, mm-hmm. we would love follow-up on it. Like we would love to know how you made out with, with the planters on your balcony and your roof. We would love to know how Joe makes out as, as far as if he found other resources or if the resources we supplied were sufficient and, and how that planting goes out in Pittsburgh. Yeah, cool. So I, I thought that was great. So um, you don't have a grow readable? No, well, I for, in sake of time, I'm going to – I'm going to pause on it. Okay. Um, just because we're already getting to right around an hour, right? We're we're just about an hour right so, now. So, and we have a an engaging discussion topic today. So, but I'm going to preface the discussion topic and say that there actually have been we we touched on it a little bit in our last episode, but there's been some policy updates that we wanted to cover uh, just briefly. Uh, first was the Jersey Native Plants Program, yeah. um, and I'm sure things have happened in other other places as well. These were two that were really pertinent to us in New Jersey. Uh, so basically they've directed, uh, the state of New Jersey is going to set up a, a program that educates people on the importance of native plants, provide some marketing materials, um, that will show why native plants are really, really important. That is, or that will be available to garden centers to put out. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, that was basically the, yeah. the crux of it. It was, the, was yeah. those know, couple of things. And, and we've kind of talked about this before, and I know we followed up a little bit on social media. It's a great program. I just feel like they had a great opportunity, and they missed the mark a little bit because you know this follows up on like the Jersey Fresh program with with mm-hmm. with produce as far as if yeah. it's grown in New Jersey, it will have the Jersey Fresh, so you know you're buying something then, that was produced in... In addition, there's a slightly less known, name, uh, known program called Jersey Grown, which would yeah. be at a garden center. It'll have, okay, you have your petunias that were grown at some place in Florida next to the ones that were grown in New Jersey, and there'll be a sign there that says Jersey yeah. Grown, so you can say, oh, I'm supporting a New Jersey business by yeah. doing that. So, it seems like it almost tried to follow that and, and they just kind of – like it, I think it's great that you'll be able to walk into a garden center, see a plant that says Jersey native and know it's a plant that's native to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The, I guess where I had an issue was in the statement that they made was that saying locally grown plants are better adapted to suit. And that's true and not true. you know. And, and we've talked about this with provenance mm-hmm. that it's, it's the seed source. So you can take – a seed of a Circus canadensis or a um, Canadian redbud that's native in New Jersey, but you could take a seed source from Florida and grow it here, and that doesn't necessarily make it hardy. Or if or if the plant's grown there and then brought up and just shifted up and mm-hmm. finished on, you may not have the same success with that plant as a plant where the seed source is New Jersey. So it's really the provenance. You want something that's a gen- genetically adapted to these areas, and you kind of didn't include that at all. So people can just buy plants in from Oregon, from Texas, from Florida mm-hmm. and bring them up and put a Jersey native on there. And yes, and that that plant may be native to New Jersey, but the source is maybe nowhere close to what our genetic 
are for that same plant. Mm. A, a couple of the other issues that we talked about with, uh, and it's not necessarily a, a knock on the program, but budgeting is already really tight. And we've seen other programs like this pop up, not necessarily for native plants, but yeah. for all well, the Jersey grown programs, a, a great example of it where it's hard to, to get the money out there to get it activated and yeah. get people involved. And once you get enough people involved, it'll kind of roll on its own. But yeah. if you don't have that startup, it's really, really hard to get it going. And we got to make sure that if this is going to happen, there's enough of that, that kickstart that it's actually going to take off because uh, right now I'm looking at a lot of garden centers that they don't know much about native plants. You're going to have, now you're going to have signage saying, oh, this is something, but you're going to have a sales associate who doesn't know no. why it's better or not. Yeah. Um, so there's some some education that needs to happen at the garden set at a level um, and really all the way down the chain to the, the consumer to make it even impactful. And that's if people buy into it and actually use the, the signage. Now, so. if I remember correctly – you know, we did try to say something as an organization mm-hmm. early on when yep. they, this was in the planning stage of saying, hey, you you know, this is great, but mm-hmm. – and we even had politicians at the nursery for, for meetings and tours mm-hmm. to talk yep. about this, and it still kind of didn't happen. Yeah. So – and, you know, I guess what I read – Maybe that would be a great take it or leave it. Would you rather see it happen in the form that it's in or not have happened because it's in the yeah. – Oh, I, I think it's unequivocally – it's a, a great step. Yeah. It's just we got to implement the step now. Yeah. And, um, and then once you get the people educated that natives are better than non-natives, then it's, okay, well, now you got to take that – it's the same thing with, the I guess, the cultivar debate yeah. is once you get to that point, is it, okay – for your site, are cultivars a better choice than than straight species, or straight species the better choice? So that's it's just the as you get deeper and deeper into it, there's more education that goes along with it. Now, this so. is what I'm curious to find, and and I, I guess shame on me for being cynical. How many garden centers will say misrepresent? Without putting a label on it and just say, "Oh, I could tell you which one's their neighbor." Burning bush, you'll see those all over New Jersey. They're native, mm-hmm. you know, that, and that's one. Of, yeah, one of the worries I have too, because you already see it with um, some some brands have already taken it upon themselves to label native plants versus uh, I should say they don't label non-native plants, but the label stuff is native, and you'll see it in garden centers all over the Northeast, and it's a plant that's native to the Southwest, yeah, but it still has it on the tag saying, "Oh, this is a native plant." Yeah, it's native to North America, but it's not native here. Yeah. And um, and I've seen a lot of that pop up on social media. Now, people who are educated in native plants are going to be like, oh, that's an, they'll get that. Yeah. But your regular buyer who's trying to make a difference um, at their home but doesn't have that background in, in uh, native plants really, but they know – They've kind of seen the marketing and say, oh, native plants are a good thing. I know these people who are influenced in my life, they're planting native plants. They go to their garden center and see this says it's a native plant. They go home and buy it. If they don't – well, one, they've planted something that's not native to their area. And two, if they find out that it's not native to their area, they're probably going to be disappointed because they thought they were doing something good, and now they realize that it didn't have the same benefit as they thought. And they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth and maybe not – Want to participate in that program? Yep. We want people to be successful it's gonna, with the program. It's going to look like they've been had, yeah. Instead of instead of having the impact where oh, I'm actually am making a difference. You know, one it's, of the things that I'm actually kind of sad about 
is that we tried to implement probably 10 years ago, we, we had trademarked the, it was called local provenance check. Mm -hmm. And we had started labeling plants, even though our plants don't go to a retail market, even so that our end customer, and it would show a map of the Northeast and it would have a circle where the seed originated from. And it was zones. We had like three different zones. Uh, it was because where we were collecting, if the seed source was Virginia, New York, or New Jersey at the time because we had locations in all three. So you could look at the tag, know that it was grown from a seed collected locally and what area it was collected from. I thought that was a wonderful program. But mm -hmm. most of the time, a lot of our end user didn't really care. Yeah, it will lose that, and then they would want um, a list of ten species, and we only had, if we we're lucky, seven of them were native to where they wanted them from. But we yeah. still, they wanted them upstate New York, but we had the other ones from Virginia. A lot of times, they'd still take the ones take, from Virginia, exactly, because they needed that that plant material. So, but it's important to know that at mm -hmm. least yeah. it's important. Yeah. Like you, you could buy this this Jersey native plant and mm -hmm. never really know what the provenance is yep. and i think that's yeah. kind of that's that's extremely important to to native plants and what mm -hmm. you plant in your yard no, now we, we're saying should you know and we've talked about this too should you in a in a perfect world yeah i'd only ever plant native plants grown mm -hmm. from a local provenance that's not always possible like if, if you want certain plants mm -hmm. you, you may have to go outside that range or, or get a cultivar because you can't it, it's so hard to grow you can't find the right thing yeah. so yep. we we all make those uh, exceptions. Yeah. We're not telling you to be. You can want to be pure on it, but we would never hold anyone to that or or mm -hmm. speak badly about you if you didn't adhere to that. Yeah. So to summarize, our stance on the Jersey Native Plants Program is overall it's a it's a good step. It just needs that a lot of education to go into it, and who's going to do that and who's going to fund it. Yeah. That's what it really comes down to is who's going to actually get this rolling because right now it's just kind of a feel good thing that's floating in the in the air. Yeah. Um, but I know there's people who've reached out to me about it that want to, want to make it happen. So, so there's some good hands that are already getting involved. Uh, the second bill that's, I think, I don't think the governor signed it yet in New Jersey, but, um, there's a, a bill that will ban some uses of neonicotinoid pesticides in New Jersey. Um, and again, it's, uh, well, I'll read a little bit about it. Basically, this bill would direct the Department of Environmental Protection to classify neonicotinoid pesticides as, uh, designed or intended for the use on in outdoor applications as restricted-use pesticides and establish a list of chemicals that belong to the neonicotinoid class of chemicals to be included under this classification. Um, and basically, the, these are a hot topic item because they are they're there to kill insects, and they're systemic to the plant, so the plant takes it up, and it's held in the plant for a matter, typically a matter of months, um, sometimes it's only a month, but they're finding that there's maybe they stick around a little bit longer than they're intended and, uh, not so much in the plants, but sometimes more in the soil or in water. <coughs> so they're finding uses. These are really heavily, heavily used, uh, especially in, uh, well in the nursery trade one, but even more so in agricultural trades. And then probably the highest rate of usage is in, um, the home market, so especially on lawns. So this would ban, uh, by making a restricted-use pesticide, only someone who is a, a certified applicator could go and buy it. Right now, I could walk into Home Depot, Lowe's, Ace, any hardware store, and I could buy as much of this <laughs> as I wanted. Um, 
in a ton of different formulations, uh, this bill would basically make it so that's not allowed. Yeah. And that was one of the things I saw with this bill. Um, there was a write-up on it by the NRDC, I think, and they were talking about this was a couple months ago, talking about this bill and saying and there was a quote, and I almost wrote to the guy, and I probably should have, because he said that like ninety percent of reported uh, over or purported um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, where basically where it was used not according to label were by commercial applicators. And it's like, well, it's because they had to report it. Yeah. <laughs> it's your home yeah. users are, are misusing it probably 99% of the time. Yeah. and But they're not reporting it. They're saying, oh, if if it says to use one ounce to on this amount, three, three ounces is probably even better. Yeah, that would be <laughs> that's great. Because that's realistically what's happening. Is, oh, I have I have white grubs in my yard. And it says I need to use this much. And they just they aren't trained in how to use these materials. And that's not to say certified applicators – are not going off label as well, yeah. but they are risking something when they do. It, yes, because they they're the DEP. We we have I'm a certified. Uh, I have a, a pesticide applicator certificate. We have I had seven one people in P- here. Yeah, I had um, one in PA, but I let we it last. we really encourage a lot of our folks here to use them, even though we don't use a ton. We don't use any neonicotinoid pesticides. We try not to use a, we use some fungicides, some herbicides. Um, and a lot of it's not even necessarily on the plant material. We do use stuff on the plant material as well. But we want a lot of people to get that certification so they know how this stuff works. And basically, you take it a lot more seriously. Yes. And But we get visited by the New Jersey DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, every year. And they kind of go through and audit our list. We have to send in a list to our fire department. We have to send a list to the DEP saying, hey, here's what we have on hand. Here's what we're using. We have to know a lot of that stuff. If you're a homeowner, you don't. No. You can just go and get it. This would block that, and that's a good thing. Yes, I guess there's some some discussions where now they're saying, "Oh, it could block um, or ban some." A lot of the agricultural industries would be exempt, but some of the landscape industries would not. Personally, I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't think you need as much lawn as as everyone. Everyone and that's has. a personal. I, I'm but, sure there's people that would argue differently on that, but I, you know, I. It's a tool, and like mm-hmm. I said, we, we talked about this on the last episode. You hate to see tools just completely taken away, but you can't necessarily police that someone's using the tool correctly yep. 24-7. And wherever you find the most misusage, I think sometimes you have to take a more extreme approach to, to limiting that. So I kind of like that given the uproar about – you know, it's, it's funny for the amount of people that know what a neonic is and that it's not good. I wonder how many people – may have that that chemical in their shed without even knowing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 sometimes it's a little uh little hard to go through and read everything every active ingredient and and what it does on the the, the back of a label, but you know, I'm that's one that definitely I want to see less of. You know, we mm-hmm. we made the conscious decision years ago to not use it, and it was a very difficult decision because it's it's mm-hmm. it's hard sometimes. It makes things a yeah. lot harder because going back to your article, it was talking about we, when you go to the garden center, people they were advising people to pick plants that look like they weren't affected by disease or insects. Yeah. Well, it makes you you can't. 
You're not getting that plant. You're not getting that if you're not using this. Yeah. And people already, they want to pick a healthy looking plant. You don't want to go and get something that's defoliated, which with native plants tends not to be the case. But we do have invasive insects that will do that at our nursery. No, but you wouldn't wouldn't want to go and pick something that was maybe nutrient deficient and it's mm -hmm. yellowed and maybe wilting a little bit. But Mm -hmm. you you, you want something that it looks like, hey, insects are eating this plant and just doing its job. That's its job. You know, and it's. You're going to get more of that without using these chemicals, mm-hmm. and that's that needs to be acceptable. It yeah. it, it really does, mm-hmm. and it's it it's it's tough because anytime legislature has to step it, you you would hope people would just do the right thing and not use it. Mm-hmm. But it's a shame, I think, when you have to go to the extreme where you have to ban it. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it was banned in Europe um, in 2018. I guess unfortunately, there was there's a ton of exemptions. Um, and even in some of the places where it was banned even stricter than what the EU did, they're extending some of those exemptions a little bit longer. So it seems as though it's it's primarily been directed at home use, which is, in my opinion, a lot of the problem. Because I, I, I feel that there are times – listen, I'm not advocating for this oh, at yeah. all. Yeah. But there's times that you should be able to use it where it's a minimal risk, mm-hmm. but you can't. Spotted lanternflies are yeah, a great example yeah, yeah. where it's a, a non-native invasive insect and re- realistically you could be out there squashing yeah. 180 days of the year. You're not going to get them all, but you can get way more in one application using a neonic on a tree of heaven where they're going to go to feed yeah. than you could probably get by squashing for, like yeah. I said, 180 yeah. days of the year. Thank you. Um, you. So it's a tool that should be in the toolbox, but we can't allow people to abuse the tool Be- and how do you do that because without- you can't police if they're yeah. using it the proper time of the year yep. the proper amounts mm-hmm. they're wearing the proper protective gear for it and they're not mm-hmm. using it to to make everything void of every insect and, <laughs> and yeah. pollinate so as the time that we're talking about this this was still on the governor's desk but it may by the time you're listening it may have been signed into law in new jersey so but it's something to keep in mind in other states too because it's happening it's in various stages of uh of the legislative process in other states i know yeah. of so so we should probably get to the next yeah i'm just looking and at that's time-wise. a really good tie-in into what we wanted to talk about uh more thoroughly and that was kind of recapping our past two guest episodes of lawn in the meadows meadows and then regulating land care and um I'll start out by saying they were both really, really interesting and thought provoking. And you'll probably even notice in that last episode, I was relatively quiet for most of it just because I was thinking about it. So there was a lot I don't of really information. Know how to what to think about this. And it's kind of goes back to the the neonic argument as well. I think, man, a lot of these gas powered tools are really, really effective tools, but we're over prescribing them. Yes. And it's one of those things where if you just take them away completely, I don't know if it's going to have the the intended effect that people are, or think it will. You know, I think for me, my personal preferences definitely lie more towards Owen's approach mm-hmm. than than some of the other approaches. That's where my my leaning – and I think a lot of our listeners are would be in the same – same place, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's important to know here's an industry that has changed so much in the last 20 years, 
and is talking sustainability and is talking and moving in the right direction without putting these places out of business for investments that they mm-hmm. made. And they're they're growing and learning and trying to to get closer to those goals without it bankrupting them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and how far they've come and like Tom and I learned a lot and how much we didn't know mm-hmm. um and what everyone's working towards and, and how much is going into this that it's important to know all of those factors. Um because there are people that care and working towards the right thing, even though you may not necessarily agree with it, but they're spreading a message to their end user and trying to do the right thing, saying these are the goals that you should be working towards, mm-hmm. and this is what we can do to make that better. But it's still, you know, if you just cut everything off, I, I said it in the last one: learning ends, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's. You know they're they're preaching these things to help get people moving towards a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Even though you may not agree with it, there's different stages. Yeah, and that's kind of where I keyed in on too was well, realistically from a from a native plant enthusiast standpoint, I want more people to be native planting native plants for whatever. I, yeah, for me, it's it's pollinators, it's it's wildlife. It's for other people, they might just like like the plants themselves. Yeah. It's less it's, chemicals. It's more pollinators. It's, and it's all that. It go ties into leaving the leaves because that is part of that um, that pollinator insect life cycle in a lot of a lot of cases. It was a great natural mulch. Um, I'm personally trying to have less lawn and more garden, um, but it's it's really hard to do. I know a lot of people are also doing this. Even just to give up a hundred square feet is a really really hard undertaking yeah. when you're doing it. By yourself, and uh, and trying to do it as responsibly, in, environmentally responsibly as possible. Um, so it's, uh, but I know none of my neighbors are going to do that, and I can even if I worked on them every day of the year, I'm not going to get them to completely give up everything they want. And even in my case, I can't give up some of my lawn because it's going to be. I'm, I have a one and a half year old who's already going outside to play in it. And that's yeah. that is the suitable play playground or play area in our area. You're not going to get that with um, native plants. You aren't going to get them running around kicking a soccer ball or, or throwing a football in a field of of native no. plants. It's it's all a bunch of choices. Yeah. And and this is how judgmental I am since I'm in a complaining mood today. I've complained <laughs> about ties. I've complained about. I I was recently at at a supermarket mm-hmm. and I had gotten. I was just picking up two items. And the person behind me in self-checkout was was getting two items too, and, and they, they made it known that they didn't want a plastic bag. They wanted a paper bag, mm-hmm. and I was like, all right. So they're making choices. They're already thinking about, hey, this plastic bag, where is it going? What's its use? I want a more sustainable choice. But then I looked at it. And I'm like, you're only getting two items. Mm-hmm. You could walk out without a bag. Yeah. Which is even more sustainable, or you could have brought your own bag. Mm-hmm. Like I was walking out without a bag. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm. This is the choice I'm making. I don't need either of these options. And if I did, I would bring my own bag. And I'm like, why? Yeah. And what you're talking there, friend, is a, a fantastic similarity <laughs> as well. Because when they they also, um, I think a year or two ago, they banned the use of of uh, single use plastic bags in New Jersey for. Uh, I think starting, it might even be this year. Yeah, I believe um, so. In the near future, at the very least. 
And uh, I think a lot of people can say, that's a really good thing. There's a lot of people saying, this is going to be a lot harder to shop, too. <laughs> but overall, it's a, a really good thing. I know 15 years ago, they were producing three times the weight of the human population on Earth in those single-use bags. Do so you imagine how light those are? Yeah. And then imagine, like, how much would three times your weight be? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of freaking yeah, bags. That, yeah. But when you look at paper bags, it's a renewable resource, but there's still a lot of ecological impacts that go into that as well. Yeah. And then they're looking at some of this, the reusable bags, and they're finding that if you can get a recycled plastic bag, it takes less uses than even if you got in like an organic cotton bag. Organic cotton is apparently terrible. Yeah. Um, and they were, I, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was like something you needed. I want it was like in the thousands of uses of, I think you need to use a, a organic cotton bag every day for the next like 10 years to make up for the ecological impact that cotton would have versus a single use plastic wow. bag. Wow. You'd have to like the comparable was like, 10,000 or 1,000 plus bags. I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's something where people are like, oh, I have an organic cotton tote bag that I'm bringing to the grocery store. I'm making a positive change. When on the actual ground level, you really aren't, and it's just no, uh, the perception but, of it. You know, but I, I love where there's stores that may take the cardboard boxes that the food came in and put them there so you can use that to carry your mm – -hmm. and then recycle yeah. afterwards. Yep. You're repurposing it. But – I could have easily have said something to this yeah. person, and I didn't because I'm like, you know what? At least they made a step in the right direction, and hopefully they continue to make steps in the right direction. The same mm -hmm. way I feel that if someone's getting a lawn service and they choose to go with someone that uses electric over mm -hmm. gas, that eventually they say maybe I don't even need this blower. Maybe I should have yeah. less lawn or mm -hmm. maybe I should be doing – you know, what are my other options? And hopefully you have the right, you know, if you're hiring someone like a Rick McCoy that's saying, hey, you know what, we can maybe do less lawn or instead of these chemicals, maybe we could do organic. Yeah. Maybe it's not the step you would take, but it's a step that someone might take mm -hmm. in the way to better choices. Yeah. So yeah. it's all a series of choices that you make. And as, as long as you see someone making a choice, I'd hate to see everything just banned and choices mm -hmm. stop because you didn't learn anything. You're just being told yeah. at that point. But from the native plant community's standpoint, I, and I kind of voiced in that last episode as well, I think that the the anti-gas equipment thing that people are going down, well, I, I do think it, it has positive effects. I think it takes away, tying the two together takes, I agree. degrades I agree. our native plant mission. Because saying you shouldn't use a gas-powered leaf blower isn't changing that person's mind that they don't need to blow the leaves. Yes. Showing them why they need to leave the leaves is going to stop them from using a gas using powered any, leaf blower. Any blower. You know. So you need to you need to have the change isn't saying, oh, we need to take this away because it's it's damaging and harmful. Yeah. Which it is. It is damaging and harmful, but we need to show them why it's how it's just better to leave the leaves in that and, sense. And it's better to have less lawn. It's better to have that's the mission we need to do instead of saying, oh, get rid of all this other stuff, and then it'll stop, and they're going to be doing this anyway. I, I it's not how I, it works. I think we're always really careful to say these are the things that would be a positive thing for you to do instead of focusing on mm -hmm. the negatives. Yeah. Like, hey, don't use a gas power blower. Don't use a blower, period. Don't you, we say, hey, leave the leaves because these are the benefits that you're yeah. getting. Have less lawn because these are the benefits a, a meadow provides. Yeah. You know, I think – Promoting the positives instead of focusing on the negatives mm -hmm. 
instead of ban this, ban that, if you'd say, hey, you know, these are wonderful things, like if there were incentives for having less lawn, mm-hmm. and I know yeah. some areas have done that, or incentives for yeah. for leaving. What if you it's got a, what if you got a tax break? <laughs> like like my municipality picks up leaves. What if yeah. you got a tax break because they didn't have to pick up leaves yeah. at your house? Yeah. But to me, that goes I a long they, way. In Montgomery County, they have um, – I think they joke around and call it a flush tax. But it's being hooked up to the sewer and uh, and or having storm drains in front of your house. Well, all that runoff off your lawn. But if you sign up to get a rain garden – at least it was. If you signed up and got a rain garden put in front of your house, that tax got reduced, I yeah. think. Yeah. But you're talking about the, the converting – this is a little tangent – the converting your um, lawn to wildflowers. I know Minnesota had a program that was about that that came. It was all over the internet a couple of years ago. Well, that I think I just saw a friend from Minnesota was saying the sign up for that ends in like the next week or two. Oh, okay. So if you are in Minnesota and you haven't signed up, make sure you do that very sign quickly up. because it's gonna it's gonna run out soon. Um, I had kind of forgotten it was happening because it came out in like twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, yeah. but apparently it's gonna run out soon. So but yeah, it's um. I, and I talk uh, – I'm thinking about Kyle uh, Lieberger, and he was saying how, well, for prescribed burns, leaf blowers are a really, really great thing. Like a gas well, – I need a gas backpack blower to help make that happen how I need it to happen. So banning it is just making my job harder, and I'm trying to do a really good thing. Well, and someone That's, in Native Habitat Manager Group on Facebook repurposed yeah. a gas-powered backpack blower into a seed disperser. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that one. You know, so there's yeah. – you know, we, we tried to give you – all sides of the conversation yeah. so that you can at least be sympathetic or understanding to everything that goes into this and and just how much change has occurred and how much change still needs to occur mm-hmm. um you know and hopefully some some ways to to deal with this instead of negatively right. a- approaching it from a positive standpoint to to move forward yeah. So. But the and another big takeaway is I've been really, really impressed with Rick and because he's doing all these things as we've been. Yeah. He's doing all these things on his own. Yeah. He's not doing it because his customers are saying, hey, I want more native plants. He's saying, I'm going to focus on native plants because it's a niche in the market that's not being filled. And I think people would want it. He's going to electric tools, uh, lawn tools, not because people are complaining that he's not using them because he knows, thinks it's a better solution than using a lot of these yeah. gas tools. And in, he's and he's footing a lot of It's expensive. Yeah, like it's, I said, I I bought a, a, a electric chainsaw for, and it cost like close to $700 where I could have easily gotten the same chainsaw in a, a gas model for two to 300 Yeah. Um, now he's even looking at putting solar panels on the, the roofs of his trailer so they charge through solar while he's driving around yeah. instead of having it going back and using fossil fuel fed electric at at his at his home shop so he's really pushing the envelope on this and it it is the right direction to go in my opinion but to just outright say you got well the points that he was making were you got to give people a time frame to actually go move over to this yeah. because it is like I said it's really really yeah. expensive to do it and then I think we need to direct people. It's plant more native plants, leave the leaves, not, hey, I'm, I don't like that you're doing this. I know it's ecologically unsound, so I'm just going to tell you you can't do it. And listen, it, this yeah. message is suited to our audience mm-hmm. because of 
of who our audience is and yep. what they're trying to accomplish. If I were to take one of my neighbors that has a perfectly manicured yard and sit them down on this podcast and just say, "Do you un- do you know you know the between the chemicals you put down?" I bet you they're they're unaware. Oh, that, they have no clue that that's that it's killing the soil, the mm-hmm. amount of runoff, the amount of yep. energy or emissions, the, the, the food web of damage they are doing. Just environmentally overall. They have no idea. They they think that you they, like think, they're doing, they think they're doing the, the right thing. They I'm think they're helping. Na- yeah, I'm a good neighbor. It's, Look what I I keep my property nice and clean. You know, there's no leaves. My neighbor doesn't have to worry about it. I take care of everything. They think they're doing a service. And uh, you know, it's it's going to take a lot to have that person change completely what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's not just banning their equipment. All you're going to do is get an angry person that still wants to do the same <laughs> the yeah. same thing. You know, it's just how do we posit- on a positive note start converting them to the correct mission? Mm-hmm. And exactly. I th- and I think I think hopefully we're we're giving everyone a lot of things to think about. We could just keep doing podcast after podcast on hey, native plants are great, mm-hmm. but. We want to challenge ourselves and we want to challenge you as well as to, you know, where we're at as a whole mm-hmm. and how do we, how do, where we need to be and how do we get there. Yeah, exactly. So we have a quick take it or leave it. And I think it ties in. Yeah, it you definitely know, Considering does. everything that we talked about and, and considering that they didn't calculate provenance into the New Jersey Native mm-hmm. Bill, provenance, take it or leave it. I, I've been thinking about this since I saw you put it in here, and uh, I overall, personally, I take it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's one of those things that really comes down to the individual, what their resources are, and like or what they have access to, and then the size of the project they're working on. From a rest- restoration standpoint, there is no other choice. Yeah. In my mind, it's you have to use something that's local provenance if it's available. It might not be available, and then you get the next best thing. But if it's available, that's what you should be trying to use. And, and I think it's something that gets overlooked. Oh, yeah. And, and I think it's something that I agree with everything that you just said, but it needs to be part of the vocabulary mm-hmm. that I understand the limitations that that the average – homeowner that wants to plant native plants goes through but i at least want them would like them to go through the checklist and have that be one yeah. of the things if it's possible that's great if it's not possible i understand i understand 100 percent. i i don't want to see i would rather you take a cultivar of something that's maybe not particularly native to your area over an invasive mm-hmm. 10 times out of 10 now here's a, a question this is – I've had meetings where we talked about the importance of provenance before, and even though I'm a proponent of it being really important, some of the challenges I saw were, okay, you have the option I can get a local provenance plant from a, an unreliable grower. It's not very healthy looking. It's really, really tiny. It just doesn't look like a good plant. Or I can get something that's out of the region or maybe even a cultivar from a reliable grower that I know is, is uh, uses minimal pesticides, if any pesticides. Um, and it's a super, super healthy plant. You could even throw price in there. The yeah. one is charging twice as much. What do you go with? And and you know what? I I would say even if you choose to go with the one that's not native to here, I appreciate that you went through the checklist and it was an option. Yeah. It, first, you had the option. Second of all, you considered that option mm. rather than just 
not have that option or even consider it 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has to be a factor whether you choose that factor or that factor is right or not. Mm-hmm. I think it's got to be part of the conversation that I don't think it's – that the new New Jersey native is not even part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It should have been, and it, I hope it still can be. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. maybe it can get modified, but it takes everyone to to have that conversation, have mm-hmm. that conversation with your garden center or your local nursery, and it's until that happens, then I don't know. Yeah. So, there you go. So I'm. I feel like I've been <laughs> so negative today. I, I wow. <laughs> so what I is guess wrong with to me? sum that up, I'm I'm taking it under conditions. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So that is going to wrap us up today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're saying thank you to RJ Comer for our Buzz theme music. Make sure you stream or buy RJ's music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you uh, stream or purchase your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and also at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, as as you heard today, we have a question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We're going to play it on a future episode of The Buzz and, and hopefully answer them a little better than <laughs> than, than I was prepared for today. Um, and we'll do that on a future episode of The Buzz. And don't forget about our Facebook group, which – Wow, man, the conversation mm-hmm. – since it's been open, the conversations are are more broad, and there's a lot of helpful interaction. And I think I, I keep getting more and more proud of, of that group every day as I, I look at it. So keep that going on there too. All right. So you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um, but you're probably going to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, really wherever you can listen to podcasts. If you leave a five-star review and Fran and I are checking them, we're going to, by our 100th episode, we're going to vote. Yes. We're going to give away a free Yeti. So it's a 20-ounce Rambler tumbler with the MagSafe lid. Yeah. It's a, it's I awesome. guess that's a special perk is the it's, MagSafe lid. Yes. And we don't just have them. Uh, we have them in the one I've been showing on the video is uh, is called uh, the color is Sharptail Top. Is that how Ooh, you say that color? Top. I don't top. know my color so. as well. Either do I. Uh, but we don't just have that color. We also have seafoam green. And corporate red. Yeah. So yeah. you have your choice of Great colors. Choices. Actually, I think we're out of the red one. So <laughs> you, you can pick one of the two. There you go. But um, let's see. You can buy our T-shirts also on nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a link right at the top. You can go to shirts. 100% of the profits are going to some of the nonprofits we've had on the podcast that are doing this work in the field. Fran and I aren't taking a dime. Pylons Nursery doesn't take a dime of it. It's all going to those organizations. So uh, – I do have a, a – it's not that much of a secret, but it's a small secret. All right. Go ahead. I mentioned just a, a couple minutes ago I bought that uh, that uh, electric chainsaw. Yeah. And that's because we're doing the big habitat management project over at our farm, Foggy oh, Bottom Farms. What a great way. And to, we're starting on that probably within the next week or two. So probably before our next Buzz episode, we're going to be in there. And our sh- strategy there is we have a lot of – um, uh, what's it? Liquid Ambar – uh, which is sweet gum and, and a couple other species. And I was actually looking up because I'm like, I feel bad cutting down sweet gums. But you look up and they really don't support a lot. They do support some native insects and wildlife, but they really don't benefit as much as your oaks do, your hickories do, um, 
your your birches do. There's so many other species that benefit more, and that's not that's just trees. Now you start talking about forbs and that kind of stuff. And the idea there is we're gonna to take out some of these uh, sweet gums because we have way too many of them, in my opinion, and open up some sunlight that can get down to the forest floor. And then we're gonna actually see what comes up in the seed bank first. I should back up. Step one is we're getting rid of all the invasives because yeah. we have multiflora rose and, um, and barberry and honeysuckle and all kinds of stuff in there. So we're doing that first, and then we're we're gonna take some trees out and really just try and make it like an ecological haven, like what Dr. Dran talked about that ecotone where it's kind of a blend between the woods and the because we don't own the whole woods, we just own going up to the woods. Yeah. So we're gonna blend that edge a little bit more, make it a little more feathered create really good habitat for deer and turkeys and and i did end of the day quail we're trying to bring quail back to new jersey i'm excited to see what sprouts up out of the seed bank yeah in the oh me too i'm, I'm yeah. really excited about that yeah so we're gonna the idea is take care of the invasives trim out some of these trees let more sunlight come down see what comes up in the seed back seed bank in year one take out more invasives and then go from there. then add some things we're looking at like persimmons and pawpaws and that's like some cool stuff back there that's a great secret so, yeah that's an awesome secret yeah. so i'm excited to get started i want to get started over the summer but we just ran out of time so yeah. uh, and who has time now exactly <laughs> yeah, so not any better with now. that thank you everyone i'm tom and i am fran thank you again everyone coming up we have a great episode about genetic barcoding and in insects uh which we're really excited to uh to have that episode come up and and introduce you to that guest so we'll see you on that one next time until then keep it native Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.